Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly funded by the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr Louise Kugler and today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr Michelle Thunders. We're talking about epigenetics, genomics and personalised medicine. Michelle Thunders is a senior lecturer in the Department of Pathology and Molecular Medicine at the University of Otago. Welcome Michelle. Hi Louise. So I wonder if we could start please by talking about epigenetics. What exactly is epigenetics? How will it affect my patients and how can I inform them on this topic? Epigenetics essentially are factors that impact on gene control but they do not change our DNA sequence. So maybe I need to backtrack a little bit. So when we talk about genomics and our genetic information, what we're talking about is the sum of our DNA instructions that are important for building proteins. So as living organisms, we are just a sum of proteins. Um, Our genomic information is fixed at our point of conception and essentially pretty much identical in every nucleated cell of our body. And there's nothing we can do about our genome. When we talk about genetic mutations, what we're talking about are changes in our DNA sequence that alter the way in which our DNA code is read. And when we talk about reading our DNA code, it's transcribing and translating that DNA to make proteins, which essentially are uh, what we need to survive as human beings and what we needed to develop as an embryo. So our DNA is fixed and genetic mutations are fixed at the point of conception. Whereas epigenetic mechanisms are those mechanisms that can change the way in which our genes are expressed. So when we talk about gene expression, it's essentially in simplistic terms whether or not a gene gets switched on or switched off. If a gene gets switched on, then it makes the protein that our body needs. If it gets switched off, then it makes less of the protein or none of the protein at that point in time. Epigenetics is essentially the study of how our environment, our lifestyle, pollutants and other factors can interact with our genetic sequence to alter gene expression. So we produce proteins in response to our environment as a complex being. That's part of our way in which we undertake homeostasis at a molecular level. So epigenetics is important because it is that bridge between uh, lifestyle and the advice that we we give people and also um, what is going on at a genetic level inside their cells. I I like the field of epigenetics because um, it means that DNA is not necessarily our destiny. So I think a lot of genetic research focuses on genetic mutations and that if you have a mutation, that's it because there's nothing you can do about it, um, short of CRISPR technology maybe in the future. Whereas with epigenetics, there, for me it seems like there's more hope because it is the interaction with uh, the lifestyle, the behavior and social factors that there is something that we can do to change and alter our gene expression. It's understanding how diet and exercise, for example, can increase gene expression and increase our health. So I guess for me, um, the importance of epigenetics is that it means that um, changes maybe in our health can be reversible, that we do have this aspect of malleability in our epigenome that we don't necessarily have in what we don't have in our our genome as that's fixed. I wonder, Michelle, can you give us an example of, of an epigenetic turning on and turning off? 
Sure. I mean, there have been some studies um, whereby uh, they've done short studies where they've looked at patients who have been uh, undergone bed rest, for example, um, due to maybe a broken limb, and are just simply nine days of bed rest has resulted in increased um, epigenomic changes in genes involved in metabolism and also resulting in increased insulin resistance. Once these patients were rehabilitated and undertook a four-week uh, physical activity retrain, they found that this, these uh, metabolic changes were, were reversed. So the, the changes that had occurred due to the bed rest um, became reversed as a consequence of the, of the exercise. So this is really important in terms of uh, illustrating to patients the, the strength of, for example, of physical activity in being able to re reboot epigenetic control, particularly in those genes that are important in controlling metabolism, uh, metabolism and, um, and cellular homeostasis. Um, equally, um, one of our main contributors to epigenetic would, would also be our diet and nutrient intake. And so there's also been studies where they've looked at, and these studies have been in mice, um, but they've looked at the calorific origin of calories and have shown that maybe the origin of the calories is less important when combined with physical activity. So again, illustrating the important influence of physical activity and changes in which the patient has control over in terms of being able to help um, with health. Smoking also has a significant contributor to um, changing methylation. So studies where that have looked at um, in humans looking at the impact of smoking on methylation have shown that smokers have different patterns of methylation um, on their genes compared to non-smokers. Um, so I probably need to just explain what methylation is. So in terms of epigenetic, uh, the way in which epigenetics works, it's not some kind of crazy magic. It works at a molecular level. So essentially there are really two broad mechanisms epigenetics works. Um, one is through methylation. So this is the addition of a methyl group. And this can come from diet, um, from increased exercise, from environmental uh, activities, and it's part of that consequence of our um, constant homeostasis. And the methyl group tends to add in the promoter region of a gene. So if there's a lot of methyl groups added in the promoter region of a gene, this is the bit just before the start of a gene, then that prevents that gene from being switched on. And if the gene doesn't get switched on, it doesn't make the protein. So that's one way in which genes are controlled, through methylation. Uh, and so things like smoking, diet, and exercise can contribute to methyl, methyl groups and increased or decreased methylation. And there's not one way that's good. Having a lot more methyl groups isn't always good. Having a lot less methyl groups isn't always good because you know, we are a complex organism and sometimes we want genes switched on and some switched off. The other mechanism in which we can the epigenetics works is through um, accessibility of the DNA to be switched on or off. So if you imagine that in every cell of your body, uh, the DNA that we have um, is about, we have about two meters worth of DNA in every cell of our body, which is a vast amount of DNA. And so to stop it getting all tangled up, there is a very uh, complex um, structured mechanism, which is called, uh, that uh, keeps the DNA tidy. And this is histone proteins. So the DNA is tightly wound around these histone proteins. Another epigenetic mechanism changes how relaxed or tight the DNA can be wound around these proteins and how accessible that DNA is to be switched on or switched off. And obviously, if a gene is accessible, then it can be switched on. So these are the mechanisms that, whereby um, our 
body at the molecular level can regulate um, the amount of proteins that are produced in response to demands uh, that are in our environment surrounding us. So I think the important, the important point to make from a, from a case perspective, um, and particularly from a health practitioner perspective, is that the, maybe the, the advice that we give our patients, the you know, being healthy, healthy lifestyle, uh, diet and exercise is really important. It is, has arguably more um, impact over their health than maybe predetermined genetic risk factors, bar the exception of some rare single gene variants. So I think the, the main point to make here is that exercise, diet, and healthy lifestyle can have a significant influence on health um, through understanding uh, molecular homeostasis. Thanks for those examples, Michelle. It sounds like talking to our patients about the lifestyle stuff is crucially important, really. We were going to talk about genomics and how this is um, relevant to clinical practice. Yes, absolutely. So. Um, since the, the human genome was sequenced, I think, in 2003, uh, and since then, uh, the technology has advanced at an exponential rate. So whereas um, cost was originally the main prohibitive factor in using genomic technology, um, the use of genomic technology and the incorporation of genomic technology into clinical care is becoming more of a reality because it's becoming a, a cheaper way of being at, almost a cost-effective way of being able to um, maybe manage certain risks uh, in, in associated with prescribing drugs, for example. So personalized medicine, precision medicine, is whereby we're making use of genomic information to try to target treatments. Um, so there's been a big push to uh, increase now molecular diagnostics as well. Um, to support uh, traditional histological diagnosis, but also that incorporation of genomic information to help target treatments um, towards patients, to, to make them um, more specific for the patient, but also to, I suppose, ultimately, is a more cost-effective way of treating people. Um, I guess the best examples at the moment are in the fields of um, pharmacogenomics. Um, and so, again, Cost-effectiveness and patient safety are the priorities. Um, I think also you need a pragmatic approach in terms of when you're thinking about pharmacogenomics. So this is where you may pick a particular drug based on a patient's likelihood to respond well or not respond well to that drug. So I think the key thing is if you're going to undergo, get the patient to undergo a genetic test or pharmacogenomic test, it's really how likely they are going to experience an adverse effect and, and how um, how, re how common a particular genetic variant may be in the population that you're looking at. Essentially, when we talk about uh, pharmacogenomic tests, they are either predictive or prognostic. So predictive tests are where you're looking to see um, a likely treatment response. And a prognostic test is where you're assessing the risk of putting a patient potentially on a particular treatment. Um, so for a predictive test, um, what you want to do is you want to have a result. For it to be useful, it, obviously you want it to have an actionable effect. There's no point uh, getting genomic information on patients if it's not going to have any clinical um, translational effect. So you want to provide information on a patient that's going to tell you whether they're going to respond or not respond to a medi medication. Uh, good examples and, thing, and tests that are currently available in New Zealand would be looking at warfarin or clopidogrel. Um, so warfarin, we could um, 
can genetic testing can be used to get an accurate dose estimate or identify those at high risk of bleeding. And with clopidogrel, um, you can identify non-responders or in individuals who are at a higher risk for stent thrombosis and death. Um, and these tests are available, uh, I think for about $150, $200, and I think the clopidogrel and warfarin tests have now proven to be cost-effective um, in terms of making sure those treatments are designed specifically for the patients to be most effective. In terms of um, prognostic tests, an example maybe um, would be uh, simvastatin. Um, I don't think this one would be um, so cost-effective um, because I think the, ge the genetic variant that's associated with simvastatin um, is relatively uncommon. But for individuals who have this particular genetic variant, so this is a genetic variant, uh, something in their genotype, the homozygotes are about 16 times greater to ha have a higher risk of myopathy. And so the relative risk is much greater if they're on simvastatin. But I think the variant is at a point where it's so relatively low in the population that it's not cost effective to do this kind of genetic testing at the moment. And I think this is the important thing with any personalized medicine and precision medicine. Yes, in theory, it's great, um, but you take a pragmatic approach as well. Um, how likely is the genetic variant that in question um, going to cause an adverse effect? Um, and how, how common is it in the population in particular that you're looking at? So in New Zealand, a genetic variant that's common, for example, in Pima Indians or in Africa may not be, may not be a, a, a variant that's common at all in New Zealand. So it may not be an issue or something that we need to test for. And I think that's where it's really important that we have an understanding, we have that pragmatic approach and an intelligent approach to um, interpreting uh, genomic, genomic, and, uh, genomic, and ultimately epigenomic data. Um, so, so in terms of genomics, yeah, I think the future is big and it's expanding in terms of the greater amount of data that's going to be incorporated into uh, clinical practice. Um, but also, we always need that pragmatic approach in terms of. Um, what is relevant to the population that we are currently working with. So Michelle, um, consumer DNA testing seems to be on the market. Can you tell me exactly what is tested when we, when someone has this, this done? Yes, uh, absolutely. So um, there are a lot of companies now that um, offer this uh, service direct to patients. I myself have been tested. Um, for about $100, companies such as 23andMe and I think Ancestral DNA um, offer to genotype you. And so essentially what this involved for me was paying $100 US and they sent me a tube in the post and I spat in the tube and sent my saliva off to America. And then essentially what I assume they did is they genotype, they extracted the DNA from the saliva and they genotyped um, my genome, uh, a certain number of variants. Now, bearing in mind we have 20,000 genes, and within those genes there is infinite number of variants. I think they look at about maybe 60, 70,000 variants, and they look at variants that have been well established. And essentially, what these companies do then is they tell you a bit about your likely ancestry based on commonality of DNA sequences, and they often tell you um, quirky information about how much of you is Neanderthal DNA, and um, essentially, normally they tell you non-disease information, and they are also try to gather information from you for their for their research purposes. 
um, you're also able to download your data. So I, obviously as a geneticist I'm interested and I downloaded my data so I have my, my SNP data available. And essentially all that is, is it tells you information of your genetic code at certain points in your genome. It's very isolated, so at these 60,000 different points in your genome, it will tell you what your genetic code is at that precise point. So, as a geneticist, for me, it's, I still find it relatively meaningless because it doesn't tell me much about the collective impact of those genetic variants. It doesn't tell me all of the information about those genetic variants or the genes or what the genes do or how that would affect the protein or obviously from my point of view, um, how those variants are impacted on by epigenetic effects as well. So it's just a, essentially a shopping list of DNA information that they give you. Now, certain companies and people could interpret that and say, okay, at this variant here, I have this, I have a, an A nucleotide, and this means that I should have a carbohydrate-based diet because I'm likely to metabolize it faster. Uh, and that's the sort of information that people may misinterpret from, from these types of tests. And whilst there is an element of truth because there may be literature looking at that particular variant, what it doesn't do is it doesn't take that patient's whole genomic information and look at it collectively. Um, we're not at a point where we can do that yet, and that is the kind of be the next limitation in terms of genomic understanding of precision medicine is trying to take that collective information and look at individuals collectively and all their genetic variants and also their epigenetic effects as well. So for me, the consumer testing is kind of nice, it's quirky if you want to know a bit about your ancestry, but I wouldn't rely on it and it's certainly not diagnostic and I think this is the, the maybe the area that may be difficult for um, health practitioners is if you have an increasing number of patients having these tests who come to you saying, I have this variant here, I need to be on this drug or I need to... Um, I need to have this diet, what do you think? Um, it's just being able to step back and take that information with a, essentially with a pinch of salt and say, well, this isn't diagnostic. This is giving you an overview of some of your genetic makeup, um, but it's not by any means giving you an overview of how your body works or, um, and it's not diagnostic. Recently, I think also, um, some analysis of the accuracy of some of the data that's produced from these testings has been questioned um, with up to 40% of the data provided by these direct consumer testers um, estimated as being inaccurate or wrong or, or um, false positive results. So again, this can have serious, um, serious implications, obviously, um, if a patient is basing their whole um, new lifestyle plan or whatever it is based on data that, it, that isn't accurate and, and simply that's because these tests are cheap and they're not designed as diagnostic tests. So I think whilst it's great from the point of view that people become more aware of the multiple factors that influence their health, so the genetic, environmental factors that influence their health, I think we just need to take a pragmatic approach with the um, consumer testing. and just make sure that people are aware that it isn't definitive um, and and even if you did have a significant genetic risk factor for a particular medical condition it by no means is definitive a lot of these tests won't test for um, 
clinical disorders. They will test just for um, risk factors or normally non-disease causing variants. Um, so I think that's the other important thing is that essentially going back to that whole point of um, point of care for the for the patient is that actually the things that you can change about yourself, the environment, the lifestyle. Um, conditions of deprivation, all of these things that can be changed that impact on a person's health, we probably should put more focus on these as opposed to that, that fixed bit of DNA that we can't change. Um, essentially, that's the hand you're dealt, but you do have a lot of control over in terms of you know understanding that epigenomics and understanding how the rest of our body works. You do have actually quite a lot of control over your health outside of just that small part that's contained in your hereditary part of your DNA. Thanks, Michelle. So I just wonder, with the DNA testing at a consumer level, are there any potential downsides to it? Um, any insurance implications, anything like that? Um, yes, I mean, I think there are the worries. Um, I don't know if you would have to declare in New Zealand, whether you would have to declare to insure if you've had a direct-to-consumer test. I'm not sure whether you're meant to declare if you've had that. I'm not sure what the legalities on that are. Um, but I think it is a very grey area and an area in which we need to be careful of and also mindful, again, as I said, the, the whole point of unless you have a clear um, genetic variant and, and going back to that point, there's only probably estimated about 10% of our diseases have that clear genetic link where it's you know obvious genetic link. The majority of our diseases, there are genetic and environmental components. So we still, there is still that uncertainty over um, how much is determined by our genes. It's not fixed. It, your fate isn't fixed necess essentially by your genes. So I think we have to be careful with a lot of these um, these tests and the information that we have and whether or not that information is passed on. Um, because in certain, it doesn't necessarily mean that that person is going to develop a disease uh, at a later date. Um, it could also be very stressful for um, a patient. So not everybody has a very good grasp of genetics or molecular biology. So understanding what it means. And again, I think often as um, healthcare professionals, we often miss that point when we talk to patients or we talk, even talk to one another about uh, genetic diseases. We talk about a certain variant, a C128T variant. But what we actually need to remember is what is the impact of that genetic variant? So does the genetic variant, um, how does it cause or why is it linked to a disease? So normally when we talk about genetic diseases, if you have a mutation, then it's because that mutation changes the protein that should be produced. Either you don't produce the protein, you make a weaker protein, or you make an abnormal protein. So in, in simplistic senses, um, that's how we understand disease arising through genetic mutation. But for the best part, it's hard for most people to grasp that. And also just having data from a direct consumer test, it doesn't tell you how that genetic variant may impact on, your, on, on that protein. It may not at all, or it may have a much more complex effect in terms of another protein binding. But being able to contextualize that information is incredibly hard. I think it's really important that we uh, step back and just realize how complex human humans are and that we can't break ourselves down into genetic variants. So from the point of view of stress for the for the patient, uh, and also from the, I guess from the legalities, there are two important considerations that we need to probably address um, just to make sure that this information is managed in a positive way. I'm, I think that 
more information and knowledge is, is vital for everybody. I'm very much a supporter of um, empowerment through knowledge, but it's make, making sure that we understand what we mean and understand the information that is available is crucial. So helping patients to understand what that information is and the reality of what it means is really important, I think. So Michelle, as a health professional in New Zealand, if we were wanting to learn more about this, where could we go to learn? Where is a reputable place? So uh, there are lots of resources about particular genomic and epigenomic variation. So right now there's the Cancer Genome Atlas, there's a NCBI databases of genomic and epigenomic information that would have have databases of what's known about um, epigenomic changes relating to cancer, genomic mutations relating to cancer, and, gen and genomic databases. So the NCBI and PubMed are great resources, accurate resources for um, to read more about this kind of information. I think the key is understanding the basics, so try not to get hung up, because if we try to understand everything, you're never going to understand everything because there is so much to learn. I, I, I'm blown away on a daily basis. The more I read about genomics and epigenomics, the more I realize I don't know. And so I think the key is really just to understand at a simplistic level how the body works at a molecular level, how genomics works, how epigenomics works, and then keeping abreast of what current guidelines are particularly with regards to pharmacogenomics, that's a key area, and what's available in New Zealand, uh, and working with your um, local genetic counsellors as well to see what their guidelines are um, from the in terms of genomic testing and, and pathology departments. I don't think it entails having to undergo um, extensive uh, um, you know, retraining in terms of understanding all genomics and epigenomics, but it is really important to understand the molecular aspects to health, uh, I think, to be able to understand the macro aspects of health as well. So to conclude, Michelle, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners today? Uh, okay, so um, for me, I, understanding is key. Um, I think it. I think for health, empowerment is crucial, and understanding is crucial to enable empowerment. So a comprehensive understanding of health and disease needs to account for integrating genomics, environmental, social, and lifestyle factors. And we can't prioritize one of these over the others. They are all important in terms of health, disease, and risk. Our environment has significant impact on our epigenome. So therefore, it has really important in, in consideration in terms of our health promotion policies and in promoting healthy lifestyles, and that shouldn't be underestimated. Um, biggest challenges uh, include the huge data that's likely to ensue from increased genomic data being available and becoming more cost effective. And so these huge, huge data uh, files and data that's going to be available and how we integrate that and look at that at a holistic level rather than at a single um, genetic variation level, that's going to be a big challenge. And also data misinterpretation. So that whole point of looking at one genetic variation in isolation to the rest of what's going on in those 20,000 genes and multiple, multiple variants within a person. So there's a need for intelligent interpretation of genomic and epigenomic data, that's essential. In terms of personalized medicine, um, I think the use of genomic information in clinical care, specifically to target treatments and to carry out risk assessment, that's the big use. 
And the big point for consumer DNA testing, uh, maybe keep it more lighthearted and that it's certainly not diagnostic. Use it as an educational tool and a bit of fun to understand ancestry, but really it's, it should be kept separate from diagnostics. Thank you, Michelle. It's been fascinating talking to you today. Thank you very much, Louise. It's been a pleasure. I hope it's helpful. So if you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CME points, please fill in a Reflection of Learning form at goodfellow.org. Thank you for listening.